Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. Moses appears in the New Testament, both as a symbol of the law and in person on the Mount of Transfiguration. But could Moses' life be seen as a precursor of the gospel itself? In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright explores ways that Moses' life foreshadows Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection, finding the Old Testament and New Testament together in a way that reveals God's master plan. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I invite you to turn in your scripture to Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus uh, first, in chapter 3, we're going to be looking in two different places in Exodus, chapter 3 and then chapter 19. Continuing a, a little bit of a series that we began last week, uh, I really haven't named it other than to think of it as Sunday School Revisited. For those who grew up going to Sunday School or Vacation Bible School, there are uh, some Bible stories that would tend to be quite familiar. You've visited them, and uh, I think there's, there are stories or narratives out of the Bible that become so familiar to us that it's almost like the only thing we remember is, the, uh, is we remember them through the childhood lens. And so we're going to talk today about the person of Moses and two occasions when God met him on a mountain. Now, if, if I were to ask you, what, what comes to your mind when we mention the person of Moses? What, what images or events would, would f- come first to your mind? The burning bush, did somebody say? Okay, what else? Parting of the sea, what else? The Ten Commandments, okay, anything else? Probably a lot of things, but maybe those are the first things that come to your mind. And by the way, you'll have to give me a little grace because I'm hard hearing and you're talking from behind masks. So it's hard to discern exactly what you're saying to me. So, but, but I appreciate your responsiveness. In, indeed, the person of Moses brings certain things quickly to our minds, and really we're going to visit those. I, I don't want to suggest today that I'm going to teach you something new about Moses. Uh, I certainly don't want to try to pretend to undo anything that you've learned about these events in Moses's life. What I do hope to do, and, and I'll, I guess it's good public speaking, to tell you first what I want to tell you, that as you see these events in Moses's life, what we need to see is how it reveals the gospel to us. In the person of Moses, we can see a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And the way that God uses Moses, indeed, is a template, if you will, that that shows us a pattern for how God acts for us in the world. And so we're going to read two passages. First, in Exodus chapter 3, and I just want to kind of read through the first 12 verses of this text and, and raise a few things for our attention. So read with me, if you would, beginning at Exodus Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Let me pause there just for a moment. God says to Moses, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. Why is it holy? Well, our first response to that would be because that's where God is, okay? God is present, and so the ground upon which he is standing is holy. I completely agree with that. But may I suggest something to add on to that? Not only is it holy because God is present there. I mean, that is, you're standing in the presence of God. That's, that's enough reason to say it's holy ground. But I would also say that it is holy because God is about to enact something in that place through him. So it's not just that God is present there. It is also, for, it is also about what God is about to do, which is holy divine work. And it, it starts here. And so there's a sense in which Moses is entering into something. He doesn't even know what it is yet. But God does. And because God is bringing him into this, he's bringing him into a, a holy movement that God is about to start. Re let's continue to read in verse 6. And God also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was, he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in, e in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. If you are one of the people, a kind of person who highlights, writes in, or underlines things in your Bible, good for you. I want to tell you what I have underlined in that verse. You don't have to, but I want to tell you what I underlined, okay? And, and by the way, I read from a New American Standard version here, so your, your version may have some, you know, the wording may be different a little bit. But I have underlined here in verse 7, God saying, quote, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I want that phrase to stick with us this morning. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Okay? Let's move on. Verse 8. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. God, this verse begins with God saying, So I have come down to deliver them. Well, they're standing up on a mountain. So from where did God come down? Right, I mean, we picture God in, in heaven, right? And so God is saying that there's an action on God's part. God is saying, I have left my place 
in the heavenly abode, and I have come down to you. And so again, if you're underlining, so I have come down to deliver them. I have come down. God takes action, leaves where he was to come down to where the people are in order to deliver them. And, I have underlined, to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. God not only comes down to deliver, God plans to bring the people up. Up and out. Okay. Let's read on. Verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Again, underlined. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh. God has now appointed a deliverer. There is an agent who goes on behalf of God to do the work of God, the work of delivering, saving, uh, rescuing God's people. He is going to confront the powers of evil and bring deliverance to God's people. Verse 11 says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Okay, so we see a little bit of Moses here. Let me just kind of comment. There, there are a couple of ways that we might hear Moses' words there. Uh, one, this may reflect a little bit of my nature, which is I'm not confrontational. You know, there are some people who run toward confrontation and other people who flee from it. I'm the latter. You know, I don't like it. Moses may have been a little bit that way, and so Moses been, might have been saying, hey, you know, I don't want any uh, business of that. But I think also you might hear some humility in there of Moses saying, you know, why, me? What, what do I have to offer that I might be the one to go down and, and do your bidding? And so it's good for us to see, uh, you know, Numbers chapter 12 says that Moses was the most humble of all the men dwelling in earth. And so Moses definitely was a humble man, and maybe we see a little bit of that humility here in that verse. Then in verse 12 here, we're going to uh, finish chapter 3, reading here in verse 12. And God said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall, sh you shall worship God at this mountain. If you read that verse, especially the latter part of that verse, and went, what? I'm with you. For quite some time now, I have read that verse and thought to myself, I must be missing something. I don't know if something's getting lost in translation, or if I am just too hard-headed to understand, but there's something about the wording of the verse that doesn't make perfect sense to me. I'm not questioning the power and the validity of God's word. It's just that it's not what I would expect it to say. I would expect it to say something more like what you would see if you looked over in chapter 4, where God continues the conversation with Moses, and Moses is saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not able, I'm not the one to go, and God's trying to work Moses through all of that. And God gives him a couple of signs there, where he turns Moses' staff into a snake, 
where he turns his hand uh, to leprous and, and then turns it back again. You know, God, God giving Moses some signs of God's power. But God here says, here's the sign that, is I, that it is I who am, sen- am sending you, that when you bring the people out, you will worship me on this mountain. I'm thinking, all right, I don't want the sign afterward. I want the sign on the front end. I want the sign going in. But that's not the way it's phrased. And all I would say is this, that it somehow God is pointing Moses prophetically, and God certainly can speak prophetically, to something that is going to happen, saying that, look, later on when this happens, you will look back and you will remember that I told you it was going to happen. You will meet me again at the place we are right now. Or to put it another way, I'm going to bring you back to this mountain with the people. And that's a very interesting point for us because when Moses goes into Egypt and he confronts Pharaoh, who, is, who, who represents the power that is held over them, God is not setting them free to just scatter and go wherever they want. God is setting them free to come to him, to meet him back at his mountain, because there he has something in store for them. Does that make sense? So it's not freedom to just go and go wherever they want. It's freedom to come back out to meet him. And that's what God is, is saying to Moses here. When, the, when you've gone in and you've brought my people, you're going to bring them back to this mountain. This is where I'm going to meet them. Now we're going to stop reading there for now. You could go ahead and read. The conversation with Moses continues on. And then in the ensuing chapters, uh, Moses goes into Egypt and uh, he, you know, the all the plagues and stuff like that, you, you'll remember the story pretty well. Skip over to chapter 19, if you would. This is where God brings them back to the mountain. We're going to read a little bit beginning at verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, I should have said earlier, here you can see the names working together. Um, For general purposes, you can use the names Horeb and Sinai interchangeably, okay? I'm not saying that they mean absolutely the same thing. Some say that one refers more to the mountain itself and another refers to the, the, the plain where the mountain is located. But just don't get tripped up because it calls it two different names. That's all I'm saying to you. Verse 2, when they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I've underlined in there, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Verse 5 
is an invitation. It's not phrased exactly like one, but it is. I think when we remember the story of Moses bringing the people out and the giving of the commandments, which you would see in, in chapter 20, which we're not going to read, we almost have the impression like God brought them out and just said, here are the commandments, like it or lump it. And that's not what happened. If you skip over chapter 19, you miss the subtle reality that God offered them an invitation. He says, I've brought you here. I've brought you back to my holy mountain. I have an opportunity to enter into a covenant relationship with me. But I'm giving you the choice. I'm giving you the choice. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. God says, I'm going to claim you. You among all the peoples of the earth will be special because I will have covenant relationship with you. I will reveal myself to you in a way that I don't reveal it to all the other peoples of the earth at that time so that through you, others will know who I am. That's really what God says in verse 6, where God says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so Moses takes these words uh, back to the people of Israel, back to the Hebrew people. So God gives them an invitation. And the invitation is this. There's a covenant that's being offered. It's a covenant about relationship. You have a choice as to whether or not you're going to enter it. If you enter it, I will put my claim and seal upon you, and I will give you a purpose. My claim will be you will be my chosen people. I will be in relationship with you in a very special way. And your purpose will be that you will show the rest of the world who I am. Verse 7 says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. Pay attention to verse 8. It says, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You see, they embraced it. They said yes to the invitation. And so Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud, in order that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. I hope those words slow you down. Underline them, if you would. Let them be ready for the third day. Does the phrase third day mean anything to you? Boy, I hope. I hope that rings a bell in your head. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. Now again, if you read the rest of this chapter, you're going to see, and also in chapter 20 after the giving of the law, 
that when the Lord comes down on the mountain, there's fire and there's smoke and there's thunder and there's sounds of trumpets that, you know, this is what the people hear when God is speaking to Moses. The mountain shakes because of God's presence. It is an awesome and powerful and, and majestic thing when God shows up. Is it not? And the people experienced it. Okay. God appointed a deliverer, go and confront the power that holds my people captive. Bring them out, bring them to my mountain, and I will establish a covenant with them. Now, I want you to do this with me. Turn back to, to uh, chapter 3. Hopefully, I gave you some hints along the way. If you didn't pick up on the hints, I'll make it explicit. In Exodus chapter 3, uh, go back to verse 7. And the Lord said, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people. Well, the people of whom he was speaking there were the Hebrew people in Egypt. Throughout history, there have been times when we could look at a certain, any, you know, certain people groups and say, yes, they are afflicted, they are oppressed, they are in bondage, they are held under an oppressive power. They yearn to be set free. This definitely was one of them. Let me ask you this question. What really is the power that oppresses all people? It's the power of sin. The power of sin, our rebellion, is the power that keeps all of us in bondage. God said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. He's familiar with Genesis chapter 3. We were there last week. When the people first rebelled against God and suffered the consequence of their rebellion, God is acquainted He's, a, he's familiar with the affliction of his people. He is, he is familiar with the way that sin afflicts his people. So he does what? He comes down to do something about it. Verse 8 says, So I have come down to deliver them. One of the most familiar verses in the Bible is what? John 3.16. And in that verse you see action. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave... He gave God's action. He gave a son. And this is the way Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, in that powerful thing that we call the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, when he says but, you know, that, that Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant of being found in human likeness. He did what? He, he left heaven, came down to earth. Verse 8 says, I have come down to deliver them. What did Jesus do? He came down to deliver us. He didn't stay in heaven. He came to us to be a deliverer and to confront the powers of evil that hold us. This is what Christ did. The other part of verse 8 here is that God, God says, I will bring them up out of that land to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. There is a promised land for God's people. Is there a promised land for the people called Christian? You better believe it. Have you heard these words? 
that Jesus spoke to his disciples when he said, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. He is describing the epitome of promised land. And that's not to say that there is not a land of beautiful promise even in this life where God gives us abundant life to live in the midst of this this earthly life we have. But what God has in store for us is more beautiful and awesome than we can comprehend. The, the picture of this promised land was only, it was like a, a template, a foreshadowing of, of what God has in store for all of those who love him. And God says, I'm going to come down, I'm going to, to, to deliver you, and I, and I want to bring you to the land that is more beautiful than you can imagine. Um, verse 10 says, therefore come now, he says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring out my people. I thought of John three seventeen, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so the world might be saved through him. He sent the Son to deliver. To deliver. And so Jesus came among us. and He walked among us and we saw his powerful, his miracles, the, the things that displayed God's power working through him. And then what did God want to do? To make covenant. If you turn back over to Exodus chapter 19, I know you, turning pages is good. Stay in practice. Again in verse 5 of chapter 19, God says, Tell the people if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Remember what Peter said in his first epistle? We find in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he describes the people called Christian as a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession. It's the same language that God uses to Moses right here. God says, I will make you my holy nation, those who are followers of Christ. You are my chosen people. You will be like the kingdom of priests, the people who stand as intermediaries to the world to represent Christ to everybody else. I will make my covenant with you. And then I ask you about the third day. What's the first thing that comes to your mind that happened on the third day? He rose, right? What do we say on Easter? He is risen. He's risen indeed. The tomb is empty. There, there are, and I wouldn't want to get trapped in wording by any means, but you look at the crucifixion and you look at the resurrection. And I might suggest one way to look at it would be that when you look at Christ on the cross, you see the compassion and mercy of God on display. But when you look at the empty tomb, you see the majesty and the power of God on display. And God says, prepare them for the third day because that is when I'm going to come to you and I'm going to show you my power. 
And when Jesus came out of that tomb, do you remember what, what happened? The text of the Gospels tell us it was an earthquake that day. God shook the ground and the tomb came open. And Jesus came out alive and victorious. You see, it's this beautiful picture of God saying, I want you to come to the mountain where I will meet you. And there was a mountain. Let me give you another image, if I, if I may, not to confuse Moses with another. But there's another way of looking at mountains that shows you a foreshadowing of the gospel. There's a mountain in the Holy Land called Moriah. The old city of Jerusalem sits upon that mountain ridge. When you read the text of the Bible, you find Moriah, I think probably first, in Genesis chapter 22. And you might remember that it's Abraham who goes there with his son Isaac, being tested by God who has told him to sacrifice his son. So Abraham goes, and he goes to this place called Moriah. And he goes up on that mountain, and he prepares to sacrifice his son. And just before Abraham was ready to do that, God stopped the action and said, You have shown me, now I know that you love me and that you're obedient. <clears throat> if you go centuries on down the road from that, there was another occasion when a father took a son to a place called Moriah. It was on that mountain ridge. Only this time, the father was God. And this time, the son was Jesus. And this time, the father allowed the act to go through. The gospel message is rooted in that reality that God chose to offer his son so that you and I could have redemption, the power of sin broken in our life, and a promise of life with him. Do you see how the things in the text of the Bible simply point us time and again toward the cross of Calvary? And we read, it's no wonder to me that the people, the religious leaders during Jesus' day were so overwhelmed with the image of Moses. He was the most, one of the most powerful leaders that they knew in their history. And I would certainly not suggest to you that we get Christ and Moses confused, simply to say that what God was showing us in the person of Moses was showing us a pattern that would be fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, whom God uses to deliver not just one people group, but all the people of the earth. And friends, we can celebrate that. We read these texts, and you can follow on from Moses on through chapter 20, through the rest of the, uh, of the Torah. Uh, you know, so many, there are so many more ways. It would take us hours to unpack all of it today, and, and you don't want to sit here for that. But you would see so much out of Moses' life and, and, and his ministry that, that patterns something that you see in Christ. And it's simply an opportunity for us to see Christ even in the Old Testament. There's a song in your United Methodist hymnal. I doubt that you've sang it much in worship. It's page 134, and it's called, Oh Mary, Don't You Weep. 
I could sing all three verses for you, but I'll spare you. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. Well, what's the song about? <clears throat> Let me fill in the gap a little bit for you. Do you remember after um, Moses led the people through the Red Sea that was parted for them? They came out on the other side and they looked back and what had happened to Pharaoh's army? They drowned, right? God brought the sea back on top of them. And what did the Hebrew people do when they saw that? They rejoiced. I mean, chapter 15 is almost completely, um, it, it's a song of rejoicing. And one of the people who is named in the midst of that rejoicing, you look over in, in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 15 in Exodus, it's Moses and Aaron's sister. Do you remember what her name was? Miriam which is another form of the name Mary. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Pharaoh's army is drowned. If you look in John chapter 20, after Peter and another disciple run and look in the tomb and find it empty, there's a woman standing there weeping. Do you remember what her name was? Mary, she sees two angels in the tomb who ask her why she's weeping. She said, they've moved the body of my Lord and I don't know where they've put it. And they tell her that he's risen. Mary turns around. And when she turns around, she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know that it's him. She thinks that it's a, 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 the gardener, the one who is appointed to tend to that garden area. And she says to him, um, if you've moved him, tell me, tell me where you've laid him. And it's only when he speaks her name that her tears go away. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Only in the case of the gospel, it's not literally Pharaoh's army. It's the forces of evil that would do everything possible to keep people bound in sin rather than released to the gospel. And the flood is not a flood of water, but it's a flood of blood that has come from the side, the wounds of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the flood that sets us free. That is the flood in which we rejoice. You see how many times and how many ways the things of the gospel are patterned in the text of the Old Testament. It's really remarkable. And it reminds us once again that what God does, God has been weaving throughout the generations this narrative that all points, whether forward or back, to the event of history, which is the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that, God says to you 
and to me. I want to set you free to be in covenant relationship with me. Our freedom is not freedom to go and be whoever we want to be and to do whatever we want to do. Our freedom is a freedom of obedience to say to Jesus, yes, I accept the relationship with you and I will follow you and I will be obedient to your commandments to the best of my ability that you may be glorified in my life. You see, that's an invitation that is always before us. You remember what we call, that, uh, we call the Great Commission? Matthew 28, the last thing that is said where Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And then he tells them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the covenant making. And the terms of the covenant are this, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's covenant to be followers. And just like Moses did with the people to bring them to the mountain of Sinai, Jesus brings us always back to Mount Moriah, to Calvary, to remind us of our covenant that we make with him. And I pray that you will remember the power and the importance of that covenant today. And if you're not in that covenant, it is extended to you so that the promise of life eternal may be yours. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that you would choose people like Moses, humble, obedient, flawed, most definitely. But Lord, you, you call and you choose and you, and you appoint and I thank you, God, that Moses was obedient to your call. I thank you most that Jesus was obedient to your call. And I thank you, God, that you have continued to show yourself merciful to us. I pray, Lord, that you would remind us again today of the beautiful covenant that we have available to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sin the promise of life now and forever. God, I pray that if, if that covenant is not um, primary to us today, uh, that we would take some moments today, Lord, and just do whatever is necessary to, to put you and, and to put uh, at that covenant relationship with you back on the throne of our hearts, Father. I pray that you would accomplish that. Hear every prayer that raises to you today that we may be your people to bring you glory now and always. In Jesus' name, amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.